And you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 39. I bring you greetings from the brothers and sisters in Wayne. Um, it's, uh, this, as I mentioned earlier, it's our, our first time here in this building, and we're very blessed to be here and see what the Lord is doing in your midst. Um, God willing, I think at the end of the month, we'll have some time of uh, fellowship together where you guys will be coming up by us and we'll break bread together, have fellowship together, play some friendly softball together and uh, enjoy fellowship. Um, Recently, I concluded a series in the book of Hebrews up in Wayne and as I typically do between books, take some time uh, specifically being the summertime as well, to go through Psalms. And I just pick up where I left off last time. Uh, I think this time we went through, we started in Psalm 36, so we'll be going up to about Psalm 43 this, this round. And thought Psalm 39 would be a great message to share here with you all today. Psalm 39 is near the end of the, of the first book of the Psalter. There are 150 psalms divided into five books. The first 41 psalms comprise book one, which are largely psalms written by David. They address personal matters of life, and therefore these psalms are applicable to situations that we face in life. In the previous three psalms, 36, 37, and 38, there's like a a, a progression of thought. In Psalm 36, David identifies the wicked or the evildoers. In Psalm 37, the message is, wait, even while the wicked seem to be prospering, even while evildoers seem to be prospering, you wait. And then in Psalm 38, David practices his own advice from Psalm 37, and he waits, and he waits in the midst of an evil generation. He sees the prosperity of the wicked as fleeting, that their enjoyment of this life is, is, is at best a shadow, a breath. Psalm 39, which we'll look at today, has a lot of things in common with the preceding Psalm 38. Both mention discipline that comes from the hand of God. Both mention silent waiting. Um, both mention David as being uh, ill or, or frail in some way. Um, in Psalm 39, David is contemplating the brevity of life. This is a theme that will actually continue in Psalm 40 and in Psalm 41 to close out the first book of the Psalter. Some believe that all these psalms were organized this way to kind of bring out these ideas near the end of the first book. When I first read Psalm 39, I started to think about what are the themes that stood out in this book and what, are the, what should I build the sermon on? Uh, There's waiting, there's silence, there's discipline for sin. I could emphasize any of these, but I think that what the Holy Spirit would like for us to focus on in this psalm comes in verses 5 and 11. And if you look at this psalm, as I read it, you'll see, you'll take note of two mentions of the word selah. Right after verse 5 and right after verse 11. And what Selah does when you're reading the Psalms is tell you, rest, 
pause and meditate on what was just said. So in both cases, that Selah follows the words in in the ESV, mere breath. The Hebrew word is hebel. So when Selah tells you stop, pause, meditate on, on that previous thought, it's telling us to stop, pause, meditate on that previous thought that every man is breath, mere breath. Hebel also appears in verse 6, and it's translated as for nothing. It is a word, it's the key word, actually, of the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's often translated as vanity. One commentator notes that Psalm 39 differs from many of the other psalms uh, because it resonates more with Job or Ecclesiastes than it does the psalms. It's more, it sounds a lot more... As I read it, you'll hear a lot more like Solomon's pessimism than the praise of David. Let's look at the psalm. We'll read it in its entirety and listen in particular how David is struggling here. His struggle is with the discipline that what he sees to be a heavy handed discipline that comes from God. And he's wondering, why me? Why? Why in this? This life is so short. Why is it with life so short do I have to also have this heavy hand of discipline upon me? This is David's main protest here. Why does God bother with such an insubstantial creature as mankind? What is his concern with me? I have 70 or 80 years in this, in this life, and they're painful, this fleeting life. Why is it that God's disciplining me? Psalm 39 beginning in verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end. And what are the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bring your word alive to your people today that your Holy Spirit would speak through these feeble, frail, 
human words to do a miracle in our lives to conform us to the image of your son. I pray your word would not return void, but you would use it today to save and sanctify your people in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the first words of Kohelet, or the preacher, or Solomon, we know him as Solomon, are these words, Hebel, Hebelim, Hebel, Hebelim, Hakol, Hebel, which means vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The connotation of this word Hebel, or vanity, is captured in the NIV's translation of meaningless, emphasizing that not only is life temporary, but there's a futility in life because it's so brief. When I preached through the book of Ecclesiastes some nine years ago now, I illustrated this in uh, an interesting uh, illustration that I recall from my college biology class. The story of one Rosalind Franklin. Rosalind Franklin dedicated her life to scientific research. She went to school for many years and did significant research in the area of X-ray crystallography of DNA. She was responsible for the discovery of what we know today to be the double helix of the DNA structure. Yet today, how many of us have heard of Rosalind Franklin? And the reason we've not heard about her in our biology classes is that two men by the name of Watson and Crick actually used Franklin's data and beat her to the punch in publishing the double helix model in 1953 and thereby becoming famous for it. Meanwhile, in 1958, at the age of 37, Franklin died of ovarian cancer in relative obscurity. Well, Watson and Crick gained fame, and while their names may be more familiar, today their bodies, too, are lying in a grave, decaying somewhere. And the reality is, in the end, the most impressive of human achievements will be forgotten. Their inventors, forgotten, lying in a grave. Life is transitory, brothers and sisters. Many of you are young in this room and you don't realize it, but your life is fleeting. Psalm 78, verse 33, tells us that life vanishes like breath. James 4.14 refers to a life as a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And this is the message of Ecclesiastes, that, that life is enigmatic, it's absurd, it's empty. The only things that you have in life is what God gives you, and you can't do anything to change it, and you only have God to blame for it. That's the, the real down-to-earth message of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's autobiography. He explains how he tried everything in life, and everything came back empty. He denied himself nothing. Self-indulgence, education, justice, money, all a striving after the wind. Because everything under the sun, brothers and sisters, everything under this sun, under, in this world, is meaningless. It is at most a temporary diversion. There is no longevity in it. It will all burn up. It will all fade away. 
Psalm 39 resonates with this same vibe. Let's look at it. The psalm is entitled to the chief musician. So this is a song. Actually, this psalm was sung to Jeduthun. Jeduthun was one of the musicians appointed by David, mentioned in the book of 1 Chronicles. And then it says a psalm of David. Though we can't uh, be, be sure of the specific point in David's life when he wrote this psalm, I think by the context, it would seem to be his latter years as David is looking back and reflecting upon his life. Begins in verse 1 with David holding back a complaint. There's something on his mind that he just wants to vent. Look at verse 1. He says, I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. David is struggling with God's providence in his life. And he subjects his tongue to better judgment than to speak evil of God. He he doesn't want to become a stumbling block to those who might hear him. Charles Spurgeon writes of this verse, he says, The firmest believers are exercised exercised with unbelief at times. But it would be doing the devil's work with a vengeance if they publish abroad all their questionings and suspicions. David is silent. And that silence is actually something that is praised in this psalm. It's a good thing that David is keeping his mouth closed. But nevertheless, this silence was not golden to David. His passions are aroused. There's something burning in his heart that he has to say. Look at verses 2 and 3. I was mute and silent. I held my peace and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. He's holding something back. There's a fire burning inside of him. His thoughts are exasperating him. But rather than explode, he finally releases his tongue. But as we'll see, he does not release his tongue to others, but to God directly. Now, there's a truth that we can learn in this. There's a truth that we can learn by way of application. And that is that we keep our tongues to ourselves when we are around others. But we freely open our tongue to God. God is patient. God will listen to your complaint. Others, not so much. See, when you complain to others or before others, it usually leads to something, some kind of misunderstanding, gossip, judgment, accusation. And the more we talk, the more we sin. And particularly when we speak and complain about God, unbelievers are salivating to hear that from you. They love to hear Christians complain and moan and groan. Atheists and agnostics and skeptics are quite willing to listen to your complaint and offer some rational reason why you should turn away from Christ. And I I see this. I see this even in social media at times. Christians overtly being overly honest, if you would, on social media, sharing about their faith struggles right in the presence of hundreds of unbelievers. 
And always in the comments, you see something along the lines of the unbeliever calling the believer, forsake that fairy tale God of yours, embrace rational life. We see the attitude, for example, in Job's wife, when Job was complaining about his affliction, her answer to Job was, curse God and die, Job. So, brothers and sisters, we will have complaints, and at times they'll burn within us. Take those complaints to God or a very trustworthy Christian friend, but never before unbelievers. Listen again to Spurgeon on this. He says, it is well that the vent of his soul, talking about David, the vent of his soul was Godward and not towards men. Oh, if my swelling heart must speak, Lord, let it speak with thee. While it is wise, wise to not voice complaints against God in the hearing of unsaved people, nevertheless, we can and should bring our troubles to God himself. And that's what the psalmist does. The first three verses tell us of something that's burning in David's heart. And it's creating a curiosity, a thirst for us. What is it that's troubling David so much? What is burning in his gut that he just can't keep it in? He finally opens his mouth, verse 4. This is his protest. Verse 4 and 5. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. What troubles David so? What is he holding back? The brevity, the meaninglessness of life. The meaninglessness of human existence. Look at verse 4 again. Show me how fleeting I am. My life is a few handbreadths. A handbreadth was the smallest unit of measurement in ancient Israel. It was equivalent to a few inches. My, my life is a few inches, is what he's saying. My lifetime is nothing, a mere breath, verse 5. And here we are introduced to this word, repeated three times in the psalm, Hebel. A mere breath. The word hebel is difficult to translate. It literally refers to a vapor, the kind of puff of smoke that comes out of your mouth on a cold day. It's there a moment and gone. It implies elusiveness. Like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, the psalmist here agrees that life is like that. Life is elusive. It's unsubstantial. You can't get your hands on life. You can't get a grip on life. Like breath, it disappears as suddenly as it comes. And the older you get, my friends, you in your 20s or teens or 30s, the older you get, the more you realize that this is true. I am now almost 60, and looking back at life, I could say it was indeed a vapor. Now, it's one thing for David's son Solomon to say these words in Ecclesiastes. We know Solomon's follies and his failures in life, and his excesses are well documented, right? He had thousand wives and concubines and lived the rich life, right? But this is not Solomon. This is David saying that life is Hebel. 
David, the champion, the warrior, the king, the poet, if anyone ought to think more highly of himself, it would be David. He could say, I lived a full life. Yet he understood, like every man, is at his best a vapor, a puff of steam, a puff of smoke. That is all of us, friends, all, every single one of us. That's Selah at the end of verse 5, right after the word Hebel. The word Selah appears 74 times uh, in the Old Testament. It means pause, meditate on what was just spoken. This Selah here is an appropriate call for you at any age to think about the shortness and the frailty of life. No one here is guaranteed another day. And that drives us to dependence upon God. And it drives us to use the days we have with a great earnestness. Because this life is short. As frustrating as the brevity of life is, verse 5 affirms that God is the one who made it this way. Look at verse 5. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. David knows that his days are appointed by God. He knows that God has a purpose in the brevity of life. God has made life short, friends, for at least two reasons. God has made life short because, one, our fleeting life humbles us. When we realize our our, um, frailty, our weakness, our mortality... And we come to grips with that mortality. We come to grips with the fact that we're finite. He's infinite. We're finite. It humbles us. And secondly, it causes us to value the time we have. Right? If if your time on earth were an endless commodity, you would squander it. You would say, "I, I always have time left. Imagine it in the context of money. If you could buy yourself anything you wanted because you had an endless supply of money, you would do that. Oh, yeah, you'd give a whole lot away, too, because you have an endless supply, so I might as well do good with it as well. But there would be no reason for you to live on a budget. There would be no reason, there would be no corresponding blessing to the idea of Budgeting your money, being a good steward of your money, being generous when you're in need, learning the discipline of stewardship, giving to the church, all of which these things benefit us. If we just had an endless supply, we would never know those blessings. And it's the same with our time. Reality is we waste a lot of time even knowing our time is short. We, we waste time. At times in our youth, We think that we're immortal, that we have all the time in the world to live. I don't know who said it, but it's so true. Youth is wasted on the young who cannot look back at times in our lives and realize, wow, I wasted a lot of that. I wish I had those years back, but we don't. Time is a precious commodity. We failed at times to understand the value of time. 
And knowing that our time will run out motivates us to use it wisely. Just like Moses says in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may have a heart of wisdom. If we fail to gain wisdom or humility by the knowledge of our mortality and we choose to ignore brevity, the fleetingness of life, we're going to become prideful old people. We're going to be like those, those rock stars who are in their 70s and sometimes close to 80 and all wrinkled and falling apart, still thinking they're invincible, still singing they're invincible. And you look at them and say, how foolish. How foolish. They're falling apart and they're acting like they're in their 20s. Yet so many... So many busy in life, working, trying to heap up riches. Why? So that you can retire. And then in retirement, so busy trying to catch up on all the lost days of youth. And suddenly your soul is required of you. And you realize you've been a fool. Younger people here today gain wisdom about the brevity of life while you're young. And waste less of your time. Take it from someone who is older. Don't waste your years. Don't waste your years in worldly pursuits under the sun that are truly useless, vain, meaningless. What would it profit you if you gained the whole world but then lost your soul for eternity? This theme of Psalm 39 sounds a lot like the wisdom literature of the Scripture. It sounds a lot like Solomon in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Well, the wisdom book of the New Testament is the book of James. Listen to what James says in James 4, verses 13 and 16. It captures the same attitude. James writes this. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Same idea in in this psalm. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 39. Verse 6, David writes, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing, there's that word hebel again, for nothing, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Life is a shadow, some of your versions say a phantom. For nothing, for vanity, they are in turmoil. Like the book of Ecclesiastes, these verses focus on the empty accomplishments of our human endeavors. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Kohelet, the preacher, who is Solomon, comes to the very same conclusion that his father, David, came to in the psalm. Ecclesiastes 2, I'll read from verses 18 through 23. Solomon writes this. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be be wise or a fool. 
Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all his toils and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. These are not the words of some rambling foolish old man. These are the words of a life that was learned the hard way. By, by the way, the wisest man ever to be born of male and female on earth. Listen to his words. While you're young, listen to his words. Remember your creator. Remember that you have a creator, God, who made you to honor him with your life. And there is no greater blessing I'm speaking particularly to the children here, the youngest in our midst. There is no greater blessing for you than following Jesus from a young age and holding on to him to the end. Why? Why would you choose to go through so much pain, so much suffering, so many hard lessons lost to the sin of this world when you can serve your God now? And he will redeem the rest of your life. Why wait? How much vanity do you need to experience before you say, I've had enough? Whatever age you are here today, if you are apart from Christ, I would plead with you to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. To seek the Lord while he may yet be found. To forsake the worldly vain pursuits because they are a mere breath. And follow Jesus with all of your life and find real substantive meaning in your life. Christ alone will bring that meaning. Christ alone brings weight and importance and meaning and purpose to life. He alone brings you hope. If you live for yourself at the end of this brief life, the only thing that is promised you is a sure death, a grave in which your body will decay And your soul will give an account in the judgment day before Almighty God. That is what you're guaranteed of apart from Christ. But if you live for Christ now, everything done in His name will be remembered and will be rewarded for all eternity. So come to Him. Receive the gift of eternal life today while it is today. A life that is entirely different in quality from the one that was centered upon yourself, or in some cases, in the most noble of of examples, centered upon my family, the people that are around me. No, all of that is going to fade away. Center your life on Christ, not on your circumstances. This brings us to verse 7 and 8, which is the turning point of the psalm. I think we could go to the next uh, slide, I think. The turning point. David expresses his one and only hope in Yahweh. 
and the forgiveness of his sin. Look at verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. So now, get this, perceiving the shortness and frailty of life, David says, my only hope is in an eternal God. He sees himself as both a man of hope, but also a person who is in transgression, who needs to be delivered from his sin in verse 8. So he says in verse 7, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And in verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. All of us are the same as David. We are, in the words that have been attributed to Martin Luther, simul justus et peccator, or at once justified and sinner. So his prayer is, David's prayer in the psalm is, my hope is in you and deliver me from my transgressions. Two requests, two related requests. Because if we're going to have the hope of eternal life, we're going to need forgiveness for our sins, right? To have hope, to have eternal life, we need to be trusting in the forgiveness that was purchased for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. David understood what the Apostle Paul reveals in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. I don't have time to read it all, but basically at the end, by the end of chapter 7, he cries out and he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he looks to God and he recognizes Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friend, the good news of no condemnation is yours today. If you will recognize your sinfulness and then trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross to save you, that he died for your sin and he was raised for your justification. But without that, without knowing that pardon you, Stand in your sins, and your sins are like this dark cloud that are separating you from God as an object of his judgment. Put your hope in God. In verse 9 now, it appears as David is reiterating the same sentiments that he had earlier in the psalm. But now his eyes are toward God. Look at verse 9. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Now, David may not understand everything, but he knows God is personal. And he speaks personally to God, not as some impersonal force that's overseeing the world, taking care of the gravity and the laws of nature, but as a personal God and a sovereign God, and one that is sovereign even over his afflictions. Verse 9 is the basis upon which Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote his work, The Mute Christian Under the Smarting Rod. And I want to quote from it, um, just to acknowledge it. Again, verse 9, I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. This understanding that the afflictions of our lives are brought into our lives by God. Yes, foolishness of our past. But ultimately, the source is God. 
Listen to what Brooks writes, because it's so practical for us. He writes this, David's silence is an acknowledgement of God as the author of all the afflictions that come upon us. There is no sickness so little, but God has a finger in it, though it be the aching of a little finger. David looks through all the secondary causes to the first cause and is silent. He sees the hand of God in all, and he sits mute and quiet. In the sight of God, in an affliction, is an irresistible efficacy to the silence of his heart and to stop the mouth of a godly man. Men who don't see God, so that's, that's David. Now he says, men who don't see God in affliction are easily cast into a feverish fit, making no bones of telling God to his teeth that they are well to be angry at him. Those who will not acknowledge God to be the author of their afflictions will be ready enough to fall in with the mad principle that the devil is the author of all calamities. Have you ever said that? Devil? Devil made me do it? Brooks says that's a mad principle. The devil is the author of all, as if there could be any evil or affliction and the Lord have no hand in it. If God's hand is not seen in the affliction, the heart will, know, will do nothing but fret and rage under affliction. Those who can see the ordering hand of God in their afflictions will, with David, lay their hands on their mouths when the rod of God comes upon their backs. The main theme of Brooks's work is that God is a good father and he disciplines his children who he loves. And that discipline is for our good. It is good that we have been afflicted, that we may learn his statutes. The author of Hebrews understands this as well. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful, unpleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. When you are afflicted, my brother, my sister, when you are afflicted, he's treating you as his child. He loves you. And sometimes like David in this psalm, or like Job did the same thing at the end of Job, what do you have to do but put your hand over your mouth? David seems to understand that God has put him in this situation. He knows that God is, is disciplining him, but it's painful to him. And he again opens up to God with the trouble that he has. Look at verses 10 and 11. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. There's that word Hebel again, followed by Selah. David prays this prayer from an experience of great weakness and affliction. And he says, I'm spent. I'm tired. You've taken away everything from me. Everything that's dear to me, you've taken away from me. He's pouring out his heart to God here. He's praying for relief from his Afflictions, it's feeling like God has taken away everything from him. One thing that David does here to his credit, does, I'm sorry, does not do to his credit, is he doesn't seek to justify himself. He understands 
this is what I deserve in life. I deserve help. Even if he doesn't understand, why is it so severe? Why such pain? He understands. He doesn't justify himself. He questions God. God, why do you discipline with such a heavy hand? This insubstantial creature. I'm just a fleeting human being. Turn to Job chapter 7. I want to show you kind of the same thing in the the book of Job. This is a theme that's repeated often in Job and in Ecclesiastes. Look at Job uh, chapter 7. Job 7 verse 16. Job cries out to God. Seems just like David. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone? Same inquiry. Have you ever been there? Brother, sister, have you ever been in that place? What does God want from me? Why can't he just leave me alone? My life is fleeting. Isn't life short enough already? Why such pain? Now there's a paradox here. And it is this. Though life is fleeting, though our years are short, we are more than just passing creatures. True, our bodies are going into the grave and decaying. But we are... Souls that, will, that are created to live forever. Our journey on earth is brief, but it is not inconsequential. Our lives have eternal value because God has made us for eternity. He has put eternity in our hearts. And life only makes sense in light of eternity. Though the psalmist comes to this realization... It only partially soothes his complaint. He is human after all, and he is in pain. So in the final verses of the psalm, like Job, like we just saw Job in Job 7, he asks God to turn away from him. Look at verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give an ear to my cry. Hold not your peace from my tears. He's appealing to Yahweh the covenant God of Israel, and he prays with tears. When I read this, I see a parallel to Jesus on the cross as he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me amidst his tears? David continues in verse 12. He says, I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. I'm a stranger. I'm like Abraham. Abraham was a stranger on earth. I'm just like them, David is saying. And this is David, who's king of Israel. If ever he had a claim to citizenship on earth, it would be David. But he says, I'm a sojourner, just like Abraham was. And the New Testament teaches us that we are all that way. Like David, like Abraham, we are strangers in this world that is hostile to us. But brethren, if if indeed we're, we're guests here... Sojourners here. It follows that we do have a home somewhere. If if we're not at home here, where is our home? If we're aliens here, we have a citizenship somewhere. 
That home is our eternal home with Christ. That's our comfort in life and death. On earth, or as Solomon would call it, under the sun, life is Hebel. Nothing more than a vapor, fleeting, insignificant. But we have a home that is above the sun. Life, eternal, where we will receive an eternal, final reward. On that glad morning, when this life is over, we'll fly away to that home on God's celestial shore. Here, we are sojourners, strangers. Our life is brief. But for that very reason, brothers and sisters, in Christ today, I'm speaking to you. You have an eternal dwelling, a city not made by hands, whose builder and architect is God. Alas, the psalm, perhaps not surprisingly, if you're tracking this psalm, brings us back to the reality of earth in its final verse. David draws a wrong conclusion at the end of this psalm. He sees his problem as being God's gaze upon him. So he prays in verse 13. He says, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Before I die, turn away from me, God. I want to smile again. He's taking issue with the heavy hand of God on his life. And he asks God, look away. While I still have some life in me, look away, O God. And so the psalm ends as life under the sun ends, without resolution. Sadly, as life under the sun ends in death, so this psalm ends. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. I hope as we go through this psalm, you can sense the tension. God is my hope, but his gaze is consuming me. The the great benediction of Numbers 26 that was given to Aaron to bless the people of Israel is that God would turn his countenance toward his people and bless his people. But the big question is, how? How does God's turning his face toward us bless his people? Does not the presence of God bring terror? Remember, this is the book of Numbers. It's the Old Testament. God told Moses, no one can see my face and live. How can God turn his face toward his people And yet, not only do we we live and see his face, but actually experience his favor and his grace and his peace. How can Aaron say it's a blessing for God to turn his face toward us? Seems more like David is right. Turn your face away so that I can smile, Lord. This is the huge divide, brothers and sisters, between the old covenant and the new. The huge divide that David does not yet fully grasp. For David, under the old covenant, it is God looking away from David's guilt that brings him relief. Don't look at me, Lord. In the new covenant, God, in a sense, looks away from Jesus Christ, his son. 
so that we who are guilty might have his face turned toward us, so that it is a blessing to us. The sad irony of this psalm is that David's conclusion is the conclusion that one would make under the sun. It's from an earthly perspective. One might think, if God would just leave me alone, I'd be happy. That is the carnal conclusion that every unbeliever comes to. If God would just leave me alone, don't talk to me about God. Keep him away from me. Or, or me, you know what? Maybe I'll visit him in his house on Sunday, but I don't want anything else to do with him. Keep him away. He makes my life miserable. But as believers, we live for the presence of God. We will live forever in the presence of God before his face. And it is and will be an utterly joyful experience. What is it that David is not getting? And the answer is Jesus, the greater David. We sang earlier about the, the, one, the greater Moses, the greater Adam. He's the greater David. David asked the Lord to turn his face away, thinking he's going to get relief. Jesus bore the agony of being forsaken by God. David is guilty, yet has his discipline lightened when God looks away. Jesus is innocent, yet he bears the complete punishment as God looks away. Much of this is hidden from David, but for us, brothers and sisters, in Christ, with the light of Christ and the light of the New Testament upon this psalm, we understand that God's countenance, God's face is a blessing to you in Christ. But it is only possible in Christ. Only in Christ can God turn his face toward you and actually bless you. Let's not take that for granted, what we have today in him. We have what ancient Israel could never understand. We have the very presence of God in our midst, even within us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is vital to understand. Because if you go through pain and suffering in life, which you will, if you have not, you will. The emotion of Psalm 39, you're going to experience that. It's real. You're going to identify with David in the darkest valleys of your life. And you're going to seek to understand what's happening in your life. And sometimes you're going to pray and pray and pray and pray. And you're not going to get an answer. And brethren, brethren, when that darkness sets into life, let this be your song in the night. When you find yourself doubting, know that you have a platform for your unbelief. And it's not Twitter. It's God Almighty. He will listen. And He will help your unbelief. Don't hesitate to go to Him in your pain and in your suffering. Do not shun His presence. For His face turned toward you is your blessing. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Let's pray.